Welcome to Logos Live. I'm Robert Martin, Director of the City Bible Forum in Melbourne, and I'm your host for the show. Logos is Greek for word or message, and Logos Live engages the Christian message before a live audience in the CBD of Melbourne. And do we have a live audience here today? Yay! We have a couple of alive people out there. Anyway, we also aim to have a bit of fun. Who said exploring the big questions of life shouldn't be enjoyable? The X-Files was a hugely successful American television series which ran throughout the 1990s. The X-Files were unsolved cases involving paranormal phenomena. The show prompted many questions about the existence of aliens and if we're alone in the universe. Today on Logos Live, we ask if the truth is still out there. And to help us, we have Mr. and Mrs. Smith, well, more correctly, Dr. and Dr. Smith join us. Dr. Christina Smith has a PhD in astrophysics from Swinburne University and is now a full-time mum. And Dr. Michael Smith works in marine ecosystem research and has a PhD in zoology from the University of Melbourne. And Michael also writes the blog Spiritual Meanderings, which engage culture, science and Christianity. Please welcome Mike and Christina. Thanks. That's a rapturous welcome that you've received here today. It welcome, was. welcome to Logos Live. It's a very impressive studio audience. Yeah, they are an impressive studio audience. Most alive. Most alive. That's right. So, the X Files. Are you fans at all? Well, you mentioned that it ran in the 1990s, and in the 1990s I lived in Zimbabwe, where television coverage is not quite what it was here. So I never actually saw the original one, so I'm familiar with it as a pop culture phenomenon, but I didn't really watch it very much. So even if you could see the X-Files in Zimbabwe at the time, it would have almost been an X-File in itself? Pretty much. Right, okay. How about you, Christina? Are you ever a fan of the X-Files? My mum banned it for most of the 1990s because I was of an age where my mum should have banned those things. Okay, right. (laughs) So anyway, so this is going to be a short conversation today. <laughs> Talk about the X-Files. Now, we do try to have a bit of fun on Logos Live. And today we're exploring the questions of aliens and the X-Files and things like that. So in today's quiz, I thought I'd test you on how well you know UFO sightings. Question one. In 2015, how many UFO sightings were reported to National UFO Reporting Center, a leading US-based UFO investigation group? It's multiple choice. So was it A, 15? about one a month? Was it B, 38, about three a month? Was it C, 6,239, over 500 a month? Or zero, no one ever calls a UFO reporting centre? I'm going to go with C. C, what do you think? Yeah, I'm going to back him up on C. Well, you've backed it up well because the correct answer is C, 6,239 reported UFO sightings uh, reported to this group. Apparently, they've actually had over 90,000 reported UFOs since the centre was established in 1974. So have you ever seen a UFO or reported one? No. No. (laughs) That's a short answer, yeah. I can't say I've looked terribly hard, but no, I haven't. You haven't haven't had it happen to you. Okay, well, it could be somewhat of a reporting bias for that particular centre because it's based in the US, But it is interesting that most UFOs visiting Earth tend to pick the United States, and particularly the state of California, which consistently has the most UFO reports. So question two. Which of these is not a reported UFO abduction story? Was it A? In 1993, Kelly Cahill and her husband were driving home in the foothills of the Dandenong Ranges here in Melbourne when a craft appeared overhead. She reported a loss of time and severe stomach pains and a triangle-shaped mark near her navel. 
She claims these were the result of alien abduction, and this story featured in the 2016 X-Files TV series. Or was it B? Multi-millionaire businessman Kursan Ilyumizinovich, former president of Kalmyka in Russia and head of the World Chess Federation, claims that he was abducted by aliens who landed a spaceship on his balcony in 1997. He said he saw a semi-transparent half-tube spaceship which he entered and met human-like creatures in yellow spacesuits. He also claimed that they put a spacesuit on him, told him many things and showed him around. Ilya Mizinovich also claims that the aliens were responsible for bringing chess to Earth. Or was it C? There's a few bemused looks out there, but it's true. <laughs> That's, he claims. If this is true, it may not be. <laughs> you'll, you'll have to work that out. It was a C. In 1967, Betty Andreessen, a housewife in Massachusetts, USA, claims a group of four feet tall grey aliens wearing blue overalls visited her house. The aliens placed the various members of her family in a state of suspended animation. Then Andreessen was taken to a ship outside where she was subjected to various medical procedures. The aliens communicated with Andreessen via some form of telepathy where they explained that they, like her, were devoted to Jesus Christ and that his return to earth was not far away. Or was it D? In 1995, American businessman Donald Trump was allegedly abducted by aliens. Upon his return, he was given a new hairstyle and was convinced (laughs) to run for president and encouraged to invest in the Miss Universe pageant because he was now aware of the competition. So which of these was not a reported UFO abduction story? I was going to go with B, but I'm going to have to go with D now. I think D is a... Calling it an alien abduction might be a good explanation, but I, I think that's probably the made-up one. Well, actually, surprise, surprise, it is correct. Yes, D is the correct answer. That was not a reported UFO abduction story. The other three are all well-known and uh, well-received, well, well-known UFO <laughs> abduction stories uh, in certain circles. So, Mike and Christina, in our UFO sightings quiz, you got two out of two. You were 100% right. Congratulations. Yeah, a big round of applause. Now, there are many UFO reports, eyewitness testimony and alien abductions, some of which sound quite convincing. Surely this is evidence of intelligent extraterrestrial life. No. (laughs) Well, do you think that there is evidence for alien visitation? Certainly anything that has been suggested as as evidence I find completely unconvincing. Right, okay. For instance, crop circles look like like when they first started appearing, they were a very a very compelling bit of evidence for a lot of people and until I met somebody who actually used to make them with a ski pole and a long okay. piece of thread and tamping down the corn as he went. Right, okay. Anything that has been suggested, I, I've, personally I think there's, there's a much more straightforward explanation. Okay, for. so there's an element of hoax in some of these things, but some people genuinely believe that they see, have seen these sort of things. People do genuinely believe that they've seen these things. I find it interesting that reports of UFO sightings have a massive spike late on Friday and Saturday evenings, and I'll, I'll leave you to draw your own conclusions from that. Maybe the, the aliens have just picked a... You know, that's the time that they think is the best time to arrive. So sincerity, <laughs> sincerity, yes, lucidity, possibly not so Maybe much. challenged, yeah, yeah. Well, given the number of aliens visiting and the different types of craft that they apparently come in, it seems that there are thousands of aliens visiting our planet all the time. So, Christina, as an astrophysicist, what do you make of the... SETI, the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. Well, I think it's a very worthwhile scientific program, actually. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that... It has scientific credibility? It, it certainly does. And um, 
I think that scientists in the field are open to the possibility of there being life on other planets aside from our own. We are appropriately sceptical of that life actually having travelled all the way with all that fuel and energy requirement Mm -hmm. to Earth and not actually bothering to stick around to communicate anything further than a crop circle or an individual investigation. Right. What about chess? They might have brought, you know, bringing chess as a, you know, as a way of... I they didn't stick around to teach it. <laughs> I, I think that if they, if they designed chess, they would be more than competitive enough to want to continue to stay and win all the chess games. Have a global intergalactic chess competition or something. So do scientists call up places like the National UFA Reporting Centre just to get some more intelligence on the, the SETI program? No, <laughs> they don't. Um, there's a couple of things. Um, the UFO Reporting Centre does not behave in a very sort of scientifically sceptical way in, in terms of appropriate scepticism and appropriate openness to alternative explanations for uh, what is reported. Um, and the other thing is that a lot of astronomers have access to very large and very sensitive radio telescopes and that if there were communications on any of the sort of radio frequencies within radio site of most of those facilities, they would have been spotted. They would have been able to pick them up. So what do you think makes people so fascinated by the idea of UFOs? Personally, I think that a lot of people feel alone, that we're surrounded by people and that we struggle to connect with them and we sometimes wonder whether this is it. Mm-hmm whether there's something more. And I think that's a worthy question, but there are other ways of answering that question, Mm. in my opinion. We might come to some of those answers a bit later. But now there are billions of stars in the universe, and scientists have become better in recent years of identifying exoplanets, planets outside our solar system. So what is, is the chance that there is life on one of these exoplanets? That's an interesting way of phrasing that question, what is the chance, and... That's certainly one of the ways that biologists and astronomers have tried to approach that problem. You know, can we calculate the odds of life on a particular planet? Um, One of the fundamental challenges which we have with that approach is that we actually still have a very, very poor understanding of how life got started. Mm -hmm. And that means it's very hard to actually determine how likely that is to happen. We know of precisely one place that life has popped up, so you could say that, well, we've got one habitable world and there's life on it, so the probability is one. Mm -hmm. That's this place here, just in case people are wondering, where's this other place? We're talking about this this planet here, aren't we? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. The other question that comes into that question, what's the chance of there being life on these exoplanets, is that As far as we know, very specific conditions are required for life, Mm. one of those conditions being liquid water. Now, we've discovered many exoplanets. The first ones were discovered really close to their host stars, which immediately discounts the possibility of liquid water. We are starting to discover some smaller and further away. Um, Every now and then there's a media release about an Earth-like planet discovered around some star. But there is always uncertainty Um, in those measurements taken from so far away about exactly how far it is from the star, exactly how hot the star is and exactly how large the planet is. And that is if we have any information 
on its atmosphere, which is very rare to have. We would need to determine first whether there was liquid water to first make, you know, an, an attempt ass- an on assessment, that. Yeah. An assessment, you're right. And that so far has been an impossible determination to make. So, Michael, you mentioned before that it's hard to know how life began. So according to modern, modern science, how did life begin? According to modern science, it's a mystery. <laughs> right, no, one, I, no one knows. Actually, no, it's, it's, it's an exaggeration to go that far. Uh, there is great uncertainty about it, though. Um, and it's, it's interesting, actually, from a historical perspective. This is quite a recent thing uh, because it was always assumed life just can't pop out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. So there were various other theories over time, but the Big Bang limiting the the amount of time that life actually has to get going and the formation, learning more about how the Earth formed really cuts down that little narrow window of how life got started. So we know a few things. We know that basically as soon as the Earth was able to support life as we know it, life started. So the Earth was formed about four and a half billion years ago and for the first 500 to 700 million years, it was a lot of molten rock on the surface, 200 degrees Pretty hot. on the surface, like completely inhospitable. And that started cooling and solidifying about 3.8 billion years ago, and those are the oldest rocks that we have. We've got fossils 3.6 billion years ago. So very early on, you know, in, in some of the earliest places that we could possibly hope to find any trace of life, we actually find traces of life. So mm. we know that on Earth, basically, as soon as Earth could support life, life started. So it seems to have happened quickly. Uh, What we don't know is really how it got going. And there have been some experiments looking at if we have combinations of chemicals, you know, maybe some methane, maybe some ammonia, maybe some carbon dioxide, whatever, jam a lightning bolt through it, see what happens. And it's possible using those sort of experiments to generate simple amino acids. Mm. But firstly, that's a directed process, and it's very, very, very far from simple amino acids to complex information-bearing life as mm. we know it today. Mm. So basically, there's potentially these exoplanets out there. We're not really sure how life started. So it's hard to say what sort of expectation we have of life. The existing. problem is unconstrained. What do you mean by that? We don't have enough information and boundary conditions to actually... Make an assessment. Make an assessment of, yeah. of whether the problem is even solvable. Right. Well, now, as part of Logos Live, we reflect upon the scriptures, the Logos, and we're going to look at a potential UFO encounter in the Bible. But before we do that, we're interested to hear about why you believe the scriptures are worth following. Now, you're both scientists. How could you be Christian believers? There are people who would claim that people like you don't actually exist or can't exist, that science and Christian faith are incompatible. What, what do you say to that? I think that uh, that claim of non-existence is an interesting one, and it's the sort of belief which could be challenged with evidence and I would present myself as evidence that I do exist and allow people to (laughs) inform their own conclusions. Um, I don't see any conflict with being a scientist and following Jesus. I see no conflict in that at all. And basically I believe that God is the creator of not only us but the entire universe and everything that there is. And so I actually see scientific research as a way of allowing us to understand a little bit more about the character and the greatness of the creator. Mm. Um, How about you, Christina? Well, I started my career in science as an undergraduate quite a number of years before I became a Christian. And my approach to becoming Christian was in some ways a very scientifically driven one, 
where I decided first whether it was um, possible to believe in a God that created the universe, whether that actually made sense with the evidence I had seen so far in my studies, and then decided whether, given that possibility, I concluded that it was possible, um, whether there was evidence for me to do so. And um, it wasn't a journey that happened overnight, but over a number of years. And I actually find my Christian faith is strengthened by some scientific evidence, some historical evidence, and some personal evidence that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is the man I should be following. Mm. Now, we're critical of the eyewitness claims of potential alien abduction stories, Yet, you believe stories of eyewitnesses of a resurrection of a dead man in Jesus. What's different? It's useful to look at the, the kind of evidence. In contrast to, say, a UFO issue where you, know, you have 6,000 people phoning up the National UFO Reporting Centre, and I would imagine that at least 5,990 of those are reporting independent UFO mm. events. So you have a single witness of... and uncorroborated event and apparently an enormous number of UFOs visiting all of the time. Mm. The evidence both within the Bible and outside of it is completely different. You've got a huge number of independent eyewitness accounts of a single event. Mm. Uh, it's a very different kind of phenomenon. Yeah, and I suppose also their lives were transformed in a way consistent with that. Yeah, there's, well. there's a lot going on beyond phoning up a, a hotline and, <laughs> right, telling, and telling a story. I and, saw some flashing lights, yeah. yeah. Now, the vision of the, in the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel, recorded in Ezekiel chapter 1, is sometimes suggested that rather than a vision of God, instead he witnessed a UFO. For example, in Ezekiel 1, 4 to 5, Ezekiel describes an immense cloud with flashing lightning and a brilliant light in the center, which looks like glowing metal which could seem like a descending UFO. And then later in verse 16, where he describes wheels and a craft which seems to rise and fall at will. Do you think Ezekiel inadvertently confused an encounter with a UFO with an encounter with God? No. <laughs> what no. was that? Like, no. Obviously the inherent unlikelihood, or so, you yeah. say that, about the existence of aliens. Well, I think that's an important starting point, though, so it's worth just touching on that briefly. You know, if, if my starting assumption is that UFOs are extremely unlikely, particularly in the sense of actually visiting Earth, when you consider interstellar distances and the likelihood of intelligent life, physics says no, it doesn't happen. Yeah. Uh, physics as we know it. So I start off from a position of believing not only that God exists, but that he is willing and able to communicate with individuals, but not believing in the existence of UFO visitations. But as with anything, you need to actually understand the context. The first chapter of Ezekiel, it's not an isolated fragment from a completely unknown civilization that that's all we know about, mm -hmm. okay? We know a lot about ancient Hebrew civilization, ancient Hebrew literary forms, um, cultural iconography that permeated the time that Ezekiel was writing this. And you look at things which he's describing, he's describing, you know, vaguely human-like creatures with four faces and a whole bunch of wings. That's not random, that's a literary device which was commonly used throughout the ancient Hebrew culture to refer to cherubim, a particular type of angel, messengers of God. Um, he's not describing this to a sketch artist. He's not trying to paint so much a visual picture as he's using his description to explain attributes of what he's seeing and try and communicate something which was probably pretty inexpressible 
he's, and he's trying to actually communicate that in a way that people are going to under, understand. They understand those literary touch points. To add to that, it's also actually important to consider the rest of the chapter of Ezekiel in which he hears from God through these messengers. And what is said transforms his life in a way that is entirely consistent with God's interaction with his creation in the rest of the Bible Mm. and is also consistent throughout Ezekiel's life um, in terms of prophecy fulfilled in terms of continued visions from what clearly Michael and I believe is actually communication from God rather Mm. than an alien. Mm. Mm. Well, speaking of alien visitation, the Logos for the day is John 1.14. This is from the Gospel of John, which is one of the four biographies of Jesus' life that we have. It says that the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So this is describing what is often called the incarnation, that God became man. Is this a form of alien visitation? It depends very much on uh, how you really look at the word alien. But no, not in the sense that it's used. In, this, in the sense of an arrival of something which is, which is not simply human, yes. Uh, but certainly not in the sense of the, the popular culture phenomenon of an alien visitation. Yeah. Well, also... God in Jesus is not strange to this world. He is the maker and intimate knower of this world. Yeah. And the other way we use alien is to mean strange and different. Mm-hmm. So strange, unknowing, from the outside, no. So what's the significance then of God becoming flesh or dwelling among us? You want the full theological significance? Uh, just, just, you know, <laughs> you've got 30 seconds. You've got 30 this seconds. short version. You've got a couple libraries you can read. <laughs> uh, you know, if you look at the, at the grand overall picture in, in the Bible, it's one of grace and redemption mm-hmm. in a nutshell. God becoming human, taking on human form to repair the rift between, between humanity and God. Mm-hmm. The the limitation that we have in, in accessing God's divine nature because of our fallen state. So to bring it back to the X-Files, the truth is out there. Studying the universe has a lot to teach us about the creator of the universe, but because Jesus came here, the truth is also in here, in us. And um, we can understand... To us. <laughs> we can understand the universe by understanding our relationship with Jesus. Hmm. Well, it says there in verse 14 of John chapter 1 there that the author of John has been a witness to his glory and claims that Jesus is full of grace and truth. So then how is Jesus the truth? In, this, in the sense that he is fully God, not only fully human but also fully God. So God ultimately is the source of all truth, mm-hmm. if you like. And if you want to know the truth about God, then who better to get it from than God himself? So what implications would it have for your Christian faith if intelligent aliens were discovered? Very few implications for my Christian faith. Actually, pretty profound implications for my scientific work. (laughs) Okay. It's interesting, that because, you know, on the one hand, it would be fascinating simply because it would be meeting another intelligent form of life and I'm assuming that you know things that go along with that are reasoning and able to communicate and all of that sort of stuff because it would actually be fascinating to have a conversation with 
a non-human intelligence mm. um, to learn things about, you know, are you able to actually perceive the awesome majesty of mm. God? Uh, what's it like being like that? And in that sense, it would be just as fascinating to have a, a conversation with a non-human intelligence which was from Earth. Mm. Um, it would open up a whole new group of contestants for the Miss Universe competition as well, I suppose. Absolutely. Yeah. The Miss Universe competition <laughs> could actually live up to its name. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it would be fascinating if, It would be fascinating to simply interact with a, a non-human intelligence because, you know, from a theological perspective, it's clear that humans are special. Mm-hmm. Humans are different from other living stuff. Not only because as we are created, we're imbued with the image of God. Mm-hmm. Now we can discuss at length exactly what that means and what, it's, what it signifies. But it's clear, at least, that God has made us distinct from other animals, um, but also because Jesus himself took on human form. Um, so it's, it's clear that humans are special in that sense, and that's from all living things, here or any other planet. Um, it doesn't make a huge difference about that. But scientifically, it would be fascinating also to learn about, okay, so apparently life can pop up somewhere else as well so that big sort of mystery of how does life get started we'd have another data point that would be great Mm, mm. so mark and christina is the truth still out there yes (laughs) (laughs) expand on that christina what what do you mean well i i think that there is much truth to be learned about this creation and this universe in looking outwards it is not in my view, truth with a capital T, but it is truth about this creation. And there are many exciting discoveries in astrophysics that I would love to see um, happen, whether we you know, are able to communicate over long distances and whether that opens up possibilities of communicating with possible intelligent life out there. Um, what is the primary component of this universe um, so far, we actually don't understand that either in, in physics and astrophysics. So I, I think that there is much truth still to be learned out there, if you mean space. So it is still out there, mm-hmm. but that's not the only place it is. Yeah, in terms of the, the truth being out there scientifically, you know, Paul kind of talks about that in Romans when he says that God's qualities, his character, his divine nature are, are clear within creation. So, yeah, absolutely. The truth, the truth about the creator is visible in creation and can be learned more through studying creation. And at the same time, the truth is accessible to us and indwelling within us and in the Holy Spirit and in the person of Jesus. But it's ending up at the same truth. It's not, depending on which, which way you search, you're going to find a different version. Like It all actually leads back to Jesus if you follow that long enough. Let me leave you with the Logos for the day from John 1.14. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I look forward to you joining us next time for Logos Live. Please thank our guests today, Drs. Christina and Michael Smith.